Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. What do you know about the Pharisees? The Jewish group that constantly came against Jesus and his ministry. I was thinking about them. No one probably joined the Pharisees out of a desire to practice professional hypocrisy. They were the devout, the separated, the ones who took God and holiness seriously. However, it's clear by the time of Jesus, they had confused godliness with self-righteousness and lost compassion in the process. It's so easy for us to root for Jesus as he calls them on their hypocrisy. Nonetheless, this same attitude, thinking we're better than others, is not just a Pharisee problem. We can find it in Christianity. We can find it in Judaism. We can find it in Islam. We can find it in Hinduism. We can certainly find it in atheism. So what is this issue? It's not a Pharisee problem. It's a human problem. And honestly, when I look within my own heart, I see my own self-righteousness masking itself as moral outrage. What about you? But what's the cure? The way to heal a judgmental heart is with the medicine of grace and humility. Here now is Podcast 78, The Insidious Danger of Self-Righteousness. I want to look at the subject of self-righteousness with you this morning. And I've titled this, The Insidious Danger of Self-Righteousness. And I want to look at self-righteousness in general and how it sneaks up on us. And I thought, well, what better place to get started on this subject than looking at Jesus and the Pharisees? And so in Mark chapter 2, we see this encounter one of the first encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees. Mark 2.16 we read, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came, to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's something that bothered them about Jesus spending time with these people. Why is he eating with them? Doesn't he know what kind of people they are? These tax collectors, these sinners, these people that live in this ungodly way, doesn't Jesus know who they are? Why is he, why is he eating dinner with them? You notice what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, oh, they're not that bad. He doesn't say, oh, they're just misunderstood. And he doesn't say, they're more righteous than you, Mr. Pharisee. He doesn't say any of that. He recognizes, Jesus recognizes that these people he's spending time with, they are sinners. They are the ones in need. Right? And that is precisely why he wants to be with them. <laughs> because he looks at himself as the physician, as the one who has some way to help them in their sickness, in their struggles, in their dysfunction. Look at chapter 3. Once again, Jesus is criticized by these Pharisees. Here he's in a synagogue, what we would call a church service. And he's there, it says, Mark 3, 1, Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Look, if Jesus gets angry, we should take note. It doesn't happen all that often. But when he does, it's something that we should take, take a look at seriously. He says he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. 
Isn't that, isn't that something? So these Pharisees, they're staking out the synagogue. They're staking it out. They're waiting for Jesus to make a move. In fact, we could even say that they're using a handicapped man to get Jesus, to capture him, to ensnare him, to trick him. He can't believe their disregard for this man. Jesus is just bewildered by how... They're so concerned about following this rule that they've set aside concern for this man who is handicapped. He's got, he's got a withered hand. In a society where the majority of everyone does physical labor, how, how do you work? How do you do what you need to do? I mean, this must have been a devastating situation. And that's what Jesus sees. They see, hey, it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. Shabbat, shalom. You know, peace on the Sabbath. Rest on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, man, what does he say? Verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or to kill? Jesus is like, look, this is, this is taking precedent over this other rule that you have. Jesus doesn't say, hey, the Sabbath is silly. He recognizes the Sabbath. Jesus keeps the Sabbath. He's a Jew, a law-abiding Jew under that old covenant, right? He doesn't say, oh, well, you guys are just being too, too you know, rigid about caring about the law. You're being too strict. No, that's not what he says. He's saying, look, the problem is you've hardened your heart, right? That's what got him angry. He looked around at their hardness of heart. Their heart was hard. What is the opposite of a hard heart? A soft heart, a heart that actually cares about people. They cared more about the rules than the person. That's the problem, at least in this incident. They should, they should give Jesus a Nobel Prize, and instead, what do they do? They go out and they conspire how to destroy him. <laughs> look at Matthew chapter 23. This is the third of three incidents I want to look at with you regarding Jesus and the Pharisees. Of course, there are more. There are more. We could, we could look at incident after incident and draw many conclusions from them. But I just want to look at this one. This one is the woe chapter, Matthew 23. I don't know if you've ever come across this chapter before where Jesus thunders eight woes against the Pharisees. I mean, he cuts loose. Uh, if you want to see what Jesus looks like and how he talks when he's angry with righteous anger, read Matthew 23 sometime on your own. I'm just going to look at verse 23 to verse 26. It says, woe to you, scribes. Verse 23, woe to you scribes. That's not like slowing a horse down. That's like, hey, listen up, you scribes. Watch out, you scribes. And Pharisees, hypocrites. I get the impression Jesus has a raised voice here. What about you? Yeah. Wo woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. So what are they doing? They're, they're so... Persnickety. They're so accurate, they're so careful that their table spices, they give 10% of. Right? The, the little mint from the plant, they're like, all right, nine for me, one for God. Right? That's how careful they are. I mean, can you imagine doing that with salt? You know, nine grains for me, one for God. Right? Maybe that's a little too much of an exaggeration. But then they miss justice. They're so careful, and yet they miss justice. Mercy. Faithfulness. What does Jesus say? Does He say, God doesn't want your tithes? Does He say, don't worry about doing the right thing? Does He say, just focus on mercy? No, He doesn't. What does He say? You should not forget those things, but you should do these other things as well. What is that verse there? Verse 23 at the end. These you ought to have done, the very things they were doing, without neglecting the others. I think so often as Christians, we, we see these encounters and we say, we're so, 
We don't want to be a Pharisee so much that we just, we just throw out righteousness or we throw out holiness. We're like, ah, we don't need that. We just need to love people. Well, we need both. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's like, these you should have done without neglecting the others. You've got to do it all. You've got to follow the rules, but you do it with the right heart. God, give us the right heart. What do you think when you hear about the Pharisees? I wonder what you think. Sometimes when I read about Jesus and the Pharisees, I say to him, I, I'm like cheering him on. Like Matthew 23 especially, I'm cheering him on. I'm like, yeah, Jesus, give it to them. Right? Give it to those Pharisees. Tell them who they really are. Straighten them out. I can't stand the Pharisees. Right? Is that what you think? It's easy to think that, right? You say, I can't stand the Pharisees. You know, here's somebody whose life needs help, and these Pharisees are holding them back. Right? Nothing worse than a Pharisee. That's what I think to myself, right? Nothing worse than a Pharisee. But I wonder if we should instead think to ourselves, man, I've got to watch myself. I've got to watch myself because what if I am a Pharisee? What if, what if that Pharisaic mentality sneaks up on me? What if that happens? Please turn to Romans chapter 2. I want to just mention a couple of things about the history of the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were not a professional organization organization for hypocrites. It's not, like, it's not like when you grow up, if you notice that you like to say one thing and do another, that then you apply to the College of the Pharisees to get accepted. Right? It wasn't a professional guild for, for hypocrites. The Pharisees derive from a word in Hebrew that means separate. They're trying to live separate. They're trying to live holy. Why does a Pharisee want to live separate and holy? Because they want to do what God says. They want to be with God. They want that connection with God that only comes when you're in a right relationship with God. That's what the Pharisees were all about. And they were hundreds of years old by the time Christ came along. And these Pharisees, it said, uh, one scholar, Shea Cohen, said, Practically all scholars recognize that Pharisee means separated. And if you look at ancient Jewish historians like Josephus, he says that the Pharisees, of course he was a Pharisee, he says the Pharisees are extremely influential among the masses. And he goes on to say that the Sadducees, that's another Jewish group, are able to persuade none but the rich. But the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. Ladies and gentlemen, the people looked at the Pharisees and they didn't say, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. They said, wow, you're so holy. Wow, you're so righteous. I wish I could be like you. I wish I could be a Pharisee, but I'm just a simple farmer. I don't, I don't have the extra time to study. I don't have the extra resources to pursue righteousness like you do. The people love the Pharisees. The people looked at the Pharisees as the example of the best way to be a Jew in that time. So Jesus coming on the scene and saying the kinds of woes and condemning them as hypocrites was shocking. It got their attention. People were like, who is this upstart rabbi? Who is this guy? He's going to come on the scene and call the professional holy people hypocrites? And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. There's a dark side to holiness. There's, there's a very positive side to holiness, but there's a dark side too because the Pharisees started saying to themselves over time after pursuing righteousness, let's say you, you join up with the Pharisees and you pursue righteousness for a year, five years, ten years. Let's say you're five, ten years walking on the path of righteousness, of holiness, of doing things the way God says as meticulously as you possibly can. It's really hard not to look down on other people that are slackers, right? It's hard not to look down at the people. They had a phrase for them. They call them the uh, Am Haaretz, Am Haaretz, which is the people of the land, the people of the unwashed masses, right? And that's what the Pharisees started looking at the people as. There's a dark side of holiness. It's so easy to slip into moral superiority, isn't it? Does anyone ever struggle with this? It's just me. To think other sins are worse than your own. Have you ever found yourself doing that? <laughs> to think other people's sins are worse than your own. As you conquer sins, as you put some time between you and those sins you used to do back a while ago, it's really easy to look at other people that are still struggling with that issue 
and say, oh, they're backwards or they're behind the times or they're, they're just not trying or whatever. When you see someone lying, let's say that was something you had struggled with, that you used to lie all the time, and then through God's grace and His help in your life, you were able to speak the truth, even when lying would get you out of trouble. Let's say you were able to conquer that by God's grace and that you're speaking the truth. And then you, you meet somebody and you ask them a question and they lie to you. It's really easy to say, oh, man, you're, you're not very righteous. You're, 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 pretty, uh, you're pretty messed up. You're still lying to people. Right? It's easy to do that, isn't it? Isn't it just like natural to do that? Look at Romans 2. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Romans 2, 1 through 4. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. That's the worst of all, isn't it? We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, Or do you presume on the, right, the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, we're convinced that God's going to grade on a curve. Right? You ever have a curve in school? I tell you, I took some classes and they were all, a lot of the classes I took, all the grades were curved, especially the physics classes I took, because everybody failed all of the tests. Every test we ever took in physics, everybody failed. And so it wasn't really a question of, did you get an A on the test? It was like, after the curve, did you get an A on the test, right? Because the objective reality was we were all failures, completely incapable of grasping the deeper facts of the universe, right? So we were on a curve, and that's the way we think God's going to do it. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm here. I might not be here. I should be here. This is, where, this is where I, if I'm really honest with myself, this is really what God wants me to do. But I'm right here, okay? And that's not too far away. That's not too far away. And you know what? Debbie O'Toole's down here. So... You know, I'm doing better than she is, right? And here's, here's Debbie O'Toole, and she's like, well, Jimmy O'Toole is way down there, <laughs> right? And here, here's Jimmy way down here, and, and those, those poor slobs he works with, they're way down there, right? <laughs> That's what we do, isn't it? We say, oh, at least I'm not a murderer, I'm not a child molester, I'm not a rapist, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not cheating on uh, my wife, so I'm not that bad. Right? Isn't that what we do? That's what I do, that's what you, I mean, it's, 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 it's right there, it's just part of human nature, isn't it? We think God's going to grade on a curve, and look, the kingdom just wouldn't be the same without you. Right? Don't we think that? We think, well, we're the exception. Everyone else has to follow the rules, but, you know, if, if we... If we have this little secret sin over here, that's okay. God's not going to exclude you from the kingdom. Bottom line, God doesn't want to exclude anybody from the kingdom. He wants all to be saved and to come to repentance. It says in Luke 12, 32, that it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's our Father's good pleasure. He desires more than anything for you to be in the kingdom. But this, this is insidious, the self-righteousness issue. It's insidious because we don't see it, and it can destroy us. And that's why we have to be aware of it. I use my own example from my life. I have, I have other examples, but this is one that I felt like wasn't that bad, so I could say it to you and still save some face, right? I'll talk about foul language. Even as a child, I liked curse words. I just always did. Something about them. I remember I was in either kindergarten or first grade. I was just, just getting started, really. And I was at this gym class, Mrs. Dwyer. Remember Coach Dwyer, brother? Remember her from, no? Well, maybe this is a creative memory then. But uh, there was this gym coach, this lady, and she wore these glasses. We had the string on them, so she'd take them off and put them on, that, that kind of glasses. She was a stern woman. You don't get to be a gym coach without having some authority, 
right? And I remember there was this big issue where something had happened, and so we were all lined up against the wall. You know, I'm like kindergarten, first grade. I don't know anything, you know? And I'm just sitting there like a good boy, right? Cause she, she, and she's mad. I don't know what's going on. And I'm sitting next to my best friend, this girl named Dorothy at the time. And I said to her, what's going on? Why, why are we in trouble? And she said, somebody said the F word. Somebody said the F word. And I'm like, what's the F word? <laughs> and that's how I learned the F word in, in kindergarten, right? I got, I got started early on, bless my heart. And uh, I, 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 I love curse words. I, I really did. I love curse words because it got, it got attention. You know, it got somebody, it had, there's a power in using those kinds of words, right? And I, I have this memory of my dad straightening me out because I would curse in front of my mother. And he'd say, don't say that in front of your mother, boy, right? And uh, once I started taking my faith seriously at 19, I really repented. I tried to do the right thing, no matter if anybody was looking. That's when you know you're, you're really serious with God, when it's not about when people are looking. And I started to, to try to, I, I started to try to stop using bad language every time I got frustrated or, to get, or just like to be gross or whatever. Ruth remembers me before that when I had a potty mouth. She does. And uh, that was hard. That was really hard. It, it took me years. Honestly, it took me years. And, and those of you who know me, you know that I don't really curse. You know, I mean, you could ask my wife. She lives with me. She would know, right? You could ask my kids if they've ever heard my oldest is uh, 10 years old, about to be 11. Has he ever heard me say a curse word? You know, God's delivered me from cursing around people. <laughs> but I was driving in the car just the other day. I was driving in the car just the other day, and I was thinking to myself, you, you ever wonder about your cell phone, like who's, you know, I, you're not, when you're not on it? Is somebody listening? Is that camera activated? Is the government messing around? Is, is China hacking my phone? Because they're, they're, they're looking for somebody important and then they just got me. Because my, maybe my digit was one off from the uh, enemy of the state or whatever. And, and you start wondering, like, am I really alone in this car? Right? Well, first of all, you're never alone because God's there. God's there. But boy, I tell you, I can, I can string together a group of curse words that would make a sailor blush if somebody cuts me off in the car or if they don't follow the rules of the four-way intersection or if they fail to signal and it causes me to take longer to go where I'm, I need to go. It's easy for me. I see some, some Christian, so-called Christian, they're going to use the F word, they're going to use the S word, they're going to use any other one of these foul language words, right? And I'll, and I'll look down my nose and I'll just be like, oh, Guess you never read Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. I guess you never read that. Then I get in the car and five minutes later, right? It's so easy to be self-righteous. It's so easy to be... Look, hypocrisy, a lot of people say, oh, I don't like Christianity because they're all a bunch of hypocrites. You know what? Hypocrisy is not a Christian problem. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's a human problem. I've met a hypocritical Muslim. I, I've even seen an atheist pray to God. That's hypocrisy, right? You, you know, you, you see somebody who is not being consistent with who they say they are, right? It's a human problem. It's not a Christian problem. It's a human problem. We all have it, and, and it's easy to slip into it, right? So, so we need to be vigilant of it. We need to get off the high horse, right? You ever remember the story of David? Uh, why don't you go over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. That's a high horse, isn't it? Luke chapter 18. While you're on your way there, I just want to read this to you. This is from King David, where Nathan talks to him. 2 Samuel 12. There were two men in a certain city. This is the story Nathan tells him. There are these two men, one rich, one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him, with his children. He used to eat of his morsel 
and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You know, when David heard this little hypothetical story here, you know what David said? Who is that man? Who, whoever that man is, he deserves to die. That's what he says. That's what he says. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. That's what David said. Because David's up there on the high horse, and he's just like, well, this guy stole some poor guy's one little lamb and fed it to his rich guest that came to visit him. And then, of course, what did Nathan say? You are that man, David. That's you. Right? This is easy. It's easy to fall into this. It's easy to fall in and say, oh, well, this other person shouldn't do that. Right? Without, without realizing what we're really doing here. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we read, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Hello. Is that you? Is that me? Trust in yourself that you are righteous and then treat others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And we should, we should also recognize that tax collectors aren't just people that are getting the, the money that the government needs. They're people that were working for the Roman government and taking money from their fellow Jews. All right, So there was, there's a whole sense of being a traitor that goes along with being a tax collector in their society. No offense to anybody that works for the IRS in the audience. All right, so... Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Ooh, there's a prayer. Lord God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is Jesus saying here? This tax collector with all his sin, with all his dysfunction, with all his limitations is going to go home in better shape than this Pharisee who's doing the right thing except for he's self-righteous. He prays God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like criminals and fakers and this filthy tax collector over here. That's what he, that's what he prays. Right? And look, if you want to thank God for something, thank, thank Him for what, he's, for what He's done for you. Not for how much better you are than other people. Right? And so, what Jesus says in this parable is, look, God is looking at your heart. And humility is important to God. It's not just like, well, yeah, if I get to that, then whatever. Uh, this is Professor Dale Tuggy. I, I interviewed him recently. He's a uh, man who's dedicated a good portion of his life to studying the doctrine of the Trinity. And in the course of studying the doctrine of the Trinity, he stopped believing in the Trinity and came to believe that God is one. And uh, I asked him, well, what do you think is the number one thing that people who believe God is one need to hear? And this is what he said. God would rather have ten humble Trinitarians that are trying to follow Jesus every day and act his teachings in their daily lives. He'd rather have ten of those guys than one constantly battling and self-righteous angry, condemning, doctrine-obsessed, Unitarian who's got the correct theology. So don't be that guy. If we're that guy, the movement is doomed. I don't know what you think about that, but that's, that's quite a statement from someone who's dedicated his life to proclaiming this truth. And this issue runs deeper than Pharisaic hypocrisy or foul language or doctrinal arrogance. I want to show you the, the strongest example I know of in history of 
self-righteousness and hypocrisy among Bible-believing Christians. Can I do that? Would that be all right? It comes from the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass wrote a book called The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, written by himself. I love that part because in his slavery, he was not allowed to read. He was not allowed to learn to read or to write. 1845. And Frederick Douglass tells this whole story about escaping slavery and how his life was after that. And throughout the story, all the Christians are bad. All of them. And so he, he, he's, he's worried that people are going to get the impression he's against Christianity. So he writes an appendix. This is his appendix. I find since reading over the foregoing narrative that I have in several instances spoken in such a tone and manner respecting religion as may possibly lead those unacquainted with my religious views to suppose me an opponent of all religion. To remove the liability of such misapprehension, I deem it proper to append the following brief explanation. Guy could write, huh? He's got some skill with the English language there. What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as a climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men-stealers for ministers, women-whippers for missionaries, and cradle-plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for the purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of the God who made me. The Christianity of America is a Christianity of whose votaries it may be as truly said as it was on the ancient scribes and Pharisees, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guys, which strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Such is, very briefly, and I skipped a bunch of this too, my view of the religion of this land. And to avoid any misunderstanding growing out of the use of general terms, I mean by the religion of this land, that which is revealed in the words, deeds, and actions of those bodies, north and south, calling themselves Christian churches, and yet in union with slaveholders. It is against religion as presented by these bodies that I have felt it my duty to testify. Even as I read this description, even as I read the horror that Frederick Douglass and many others suffered in this very land, I think to myself, those hypocritical southern plantation owners... That's what I think to myself. I think to myself, if I was alive back then, I, I wouldn't have anything to do with slavery. Do you think that to yourself? I think to myself, 
these plantation owners are sincere Bible-believing Christians. What are they doing? Right? I don't say to myself, wow, these people were sincere Bible-believing Christians, and yet their hypocrisy is so obvious. How could they miss it? It's so easy, even reading this description of hypocrisy in this very land, it's so easy for me to say, I'm better than them. Right? And that's the whole problem. That's exactly the same thing they probably said to justify it. Do you think because we live in an enlightened age with superior technology and access to information that we're above them? These wicked plantation owners who, who, who whip these their fellow human beings, you think we're above them? Because if you, if you do, if you think you're above them, then you're the same as them. That's the same problem. Isn't it the same thing? They, it's not like they went around saying, oh, I feel so guilty for the life, the life I lead. They go around saying, I'm righteous. I tithe. I go to church. I teach at the Sunday service. I, I lead the songs or I do this and that for the missionaries. Frederick Douglass says, you guys, you send all your money to the missionaries, but the people at home you treat like animals. Right? And so this is, this is a major problem, and it's not a problem about people living in the South. It's not a problem for people that own cotton plantations, and it's not a problem only for those of us who are in the ministry. The problem is a human problem, and we have to be on the lookout in our own souls, in our own lives, because... Otherwise, we'll slip right into that. Yeah, it might not be as ugly and as obvious as slavery. It might not be. But it could, it could still be enough to keep us out of the kingdom because Jesus says, doing all the right things and then thinking that you're better than everyone else, you can pray your prayers. The other man's going home more justified than you are. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Uh, Tim Keller talks about a difference between the moral performance narrative and the grace narrative. And I think it really helps to explain how to, how to think about this because we're, we tend to think it's our grit, it's our, athletics, our athleticism, or it's our intellectual prowess, or our, our good looks, or our, you know, whatever je ne sais quoi we, characteristics we have, right? Our style that is going to make us so valuable. We, we, look, we look at whatever it is we're good at, whatever it is that we're better than others at, and we, and we tend to identify with that. We tend to put our identity with that, right? But that's not what makes you so great. What makes you so great is that God saved you, right? Isn't that what makes us so great? God is what makes us great. So anyhow, this is from Tim Keller, and I think it's really helpful as a way of thinking. And, and it can help us get out of falling into this same trap. that has afflicted, And it's not just an American problem. It's afflicted humans throughout civilizations, Right? He writes, or this is actually from a sermon he gave at Google. There are two basic ways of thinking about your self-image. One is one I'm going to call a moral performance narrative. A moral performance narrative says, I'm okay, I'm a good person, I feel significant, I have worth because I'm achieving something. So if you're a liberal person and you feel like, I'm a good person because I'm working for the poor and working for human rights and I'm open-minded, you can't help in a moral performance narrative where your self-image is based on your performance as a general liberal activist person, you can't help but look down your nose at bigots. You can't help but feel superior to bigots. On the other hand, what if you're a traditional religious person? You go to church, you read your Bible, you go to synagogue, you read your Bible, you go to the mosque, you read the Quran, you're working hard to feel good and serve God and so on. Now in that case, you have to look down on your nose at people who don't have, believe in your religion. They're not being as good as you are. Maybe you're just a secular person and you're a hard-working, decent chap. You can't help it if your self-image is based on the fact that you're a hard-working, decent chap. You can't help but look down your nose at people who are lazy. But the gospel, Tim Keller says, the gospel is something different. The gospel says, Jesus Christ comes and saves you. The gospel says, you're a sinner. The gospel says, you don't live up to your own standards. The gospel says, there's no way you're going to live up to your own standards. The gospel says you have failed. You're a moral failure. And salvation only belongs to people who admit that they're moral failures. Jesus came in weakness and died on the cross. 
He says that salvation is only for weak people. It is only for people who admit they're not better than anyone else. And they just need mercy. If you have a grace narrative, if you say, the reason I can look at myself in the mirror, the reason I know I have significance is because Jesus died for me. I'm a sinner saved by grace. If you say that, then you can't feel superior to anybody else. He goes on, I've got a Hindu neighbor in my apartment building, and I think he's wrong about many things. But he probably is a better father than me. He could be a much better man. Why? Aren't you a Christian and he's a Hindu? Don't you think you have the truth? Yeah, but here's the truth. The truth is I'm a sinner, and I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved because I'm a better man. I'm saved because I'm a worse man, really. And so what happens is this grace narrative takes away the kind of superiority and removes that slippery slope that I mentioned in the very beginning that leads from superiority to separation to character to passive and active oppression. It just takes it away. Now Christians have got to admit in a great degree that we operate out of a moral performance narrative. And we don't have to because we've got the gospel. What, what is he saying here? He sa go ahead and uh, flip over to James chapter 4. What is he saying? He's saying we need humility, not smugness. We need humility. And where does humility come from? Humility comes from an accurate assessment of our limitations. We say to ourselves, I cannot earn God's favor. Even if I start doing the right thing and I have, I summon some sort of moral grit, Herculean moral grit, and I day after day discipline myself to only do the right thing and always avoid sin, that even then in that condition, you still deserve the fiery judgment of God because you've sinned in the past. Right? It says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Right? So with, with how many sins do you, get, do you earn death? How many does it take? Does it take three sins? Is it 1,700, 516? 17,516 sins? Okay, you're all right. 17,517? You're going to hell. No. It says the wages of sin is death. Right? How many sins did Adam and Eve commit before they suffered the judgment of God? One. Run. There's, there, there is never a time when it's right to sin. By definition, there's never a time when it's right to sin. What we are supposed to do as people created by God is live the way He's created for us to live. And we don't do it. We fail. We are all moral failures to, yeah, to varying degrees and in different ways, but all of us have that in common. We lack the ability to do the right thing all the time. And so what do we need? We need God to help us. And that's the whole point of Jesus, right? Jesus dies for us so that it covers our failings, our flaws, so that we can live righteously, right? But the problem is, and I think we know that, most of us here, we know that, right? But the problem is, once we do live righteously and we're following that path, what happens? We start to forget. If you're anything like me, you start to forget about the, how you were stuck in your sin and chaos and dysfunction, and you cried out to God and said, God, save me, help me, forgive me, get me out of this. And he did. You, for, you know, you forget. After so many years, you forget. All you, all you know is that you read your Bible this morning and that poor, lazy Christian over there didn't. Right? Or all you know is that you pray before your, all, all your meals and you go out to eat with some other Christian and they're not praying for their food. Right? It's so easy just to slip into that. We forget. We don't deserve any of it. We deserve none of it. And because, but if we remember that, if we remember the grace narrative, if we remember that God has done this for us, apart from us, almost despite us, that because of God's unmerited favor, because of His grace, because of His mercy, we have life. Because of that, we keep that in mind. And we're not going to look down our nose at somebody else. Instead, we could be like Jesus in the synagogue who sees the man with the withered hand. What does Jesus think about the man with the withered hand? He thinks, my goodness, it must be so hard to have a withered hand. I'm going to do something about this. What does Jesus do when he sees the tax collector? Does he say, you filthy Jewish traitor? No, he goes to the tax collector and says, you want to have dinner? I'm coming over. Let's, let's, let's talk. And he doesn't say to the tax collector, oh, you know, just go on, keep, 
keep sinning. Keep, you know, he, no, he preaches to them. He preaches to them, but he actually cares. Is there some way we can, we can pursue holiness and compassion? Is that possible? Is there a way to do that? Because I want to follow that way. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be so focused on holiness that I become a Pharisee and that my heart gets so calloused over with all of my own personal little rules about how much TV I can watch and how often I should read the Bible and what sort of prayers I should have before my meals and all the other little things that I want to add on to my own personal life that cake around my heart and then see somebody in need and be like, well, serves you right. You shouldn't have got drunk last night and then you wouldn't be feeling a hangover. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. Right? And then on the other side, you've got the bleeding heart Christian that's just like, oh, I love everybody, I love everybody. But then in their own life, they're mired in sin, they're mired in adultery, and they're stealing money from their job. And they're testifying to the whole world that Christianity doesn't work. Right? You don't want to be a, you don't want to be that guy either. It's so it's so love 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 that there's no righteousness, right? Is there some way? Do you know? Is there some way that we can pursue righteousness and compassion at the same time? Because that's what I want. That's what I think Jesus did. Look at his example. We have to look at his example. I think, and look at his, how he handled himself in his life. We must remember, and we can't ever forget who we were. We can't ever forget what God has done for us. We forget that, and we're dead. We're dead. We're, we're dead. We're dead with God, and, and nobody's going to like you. Because <laughs> most of us have a self-righteousness radar, right? And when it starts going off, you know, we're like, oh, I don't think I can hang out with you, right? All right, look at James 4. So you look at somebody out there with tattoos going to parties, and you, and, and you, you don't say to yourself, wow, I'm glad, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, you know, I'm not a sinner. No. You look at somebody that is, is, is in need, you say, wow, can I help them? Can I be like Jesus with the tax collectors with this person? Right? If they're going to parties, they're getting drunk, they're, they're sleeping around, you know what? The end of that way is death. Many of us in this very room know that. It's not fun. It's death. It's dysfunction. It's chaos. It's suffering. That's, what, that's the truth. Maybe not Friday night, but Monday morning it's the truth. Right? So maybe we can reach out. Maybe we can share a testimony with somebody like that rather than, than, than walk on the other side of the road. Did you know what they called Jesus? They called Jesus a friend of tax collectors. Why was that? He spent time with them. Right? You don't get... That's how they made fun of Jesus. Oh, he's a friend of tax collectors. <laughs> when they make fun of you, what do they say? Do they say... Oh, oh, they hang out with prostitutes. You don't, you don't want to talk to Sue De La Cerda. She hangs out with prostitutes. She's friends with prostitutes. You don't want to hang out with her. Oh, that they would say that of us. Wrongly, obviously, in the sense that we're like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to I spend time with people that are in need, right? But I also don't want to, you know, if Sue falls, falls into prostitution, that's no good, Right? Obviously, I pick her because she's, she's pure, so we don't have to question that. And because the O'Toole's are righteous, that's why I pick them. Because, you know. Everyone else, you're all sinners, so <laughs> just kidding. All right, so James chapter 4, let's, let's wind down here and conclude. Humble yourselves, James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Brother James is a man known for holiness. It says in, in later Christian history that he had calluses on his knees from praying so much in the temple. This is a man that knew holiness. He's a man who knew righteousness. You read his epistle, it's clear as day that this man believes in righteousness. And this is what he says. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks, evil, speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But he, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? All right, so let's go back to the beginning there, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Oh God, give us humility. Give us humility. Help us to remember what we've been saved from. Right? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to follow your son. Help us to believe in him, but help us also to follow him. 
so that we could also be like Him, so that we could reach out to the lost. And God, deliver us from our own self-deceptions because they are so hard for us to see. Prick us in our hearts if we are, if we are in need of that here this morning. Convict us. And Father, if we are on the path of compassionate holiness, that You would encourage us this day. Help us to follow Your Son in our own time, in our own situations. Help us to be a people who truly loves like You love. It says that You are long-suffering, You're a patient, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Help us to have that heart, dear God. Help us to have that heart towards those who are annoying or frustrating or who make themselves our enemies. Help us to do that even for them. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to this message. I hope it challenged you. I know it certainly challenged me when I was preparing for it and delivering it. And it's something that continues to challenge me. Please share this episode on social media if you think it's worthwhile for others to hear as well. And if you haven't already yet, uh, like Restitutio on Facebook so you can get updates when new episodes come out. I just had a quick thought to read out from Jenny Wyeth of Australia on Podcast 77, God is Enough. She writes, After listening to this message, I found some verses in Isaiah 44, 9-20, which I felt were relevant to me. After I have used my income for food and clothing, what do I do with the rest? Do I carve an idol and worship what remains? If so, my eyes will be shut so I cannot see and my heart so I cannot understand. I am deluded and cannot deliver myself. God is truly enough. Thanks to John for this message and Sean et al. for making this content available online. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, that's Podcast 77, Guys Enough with John Courtright. And it will certainly challenge you to think about your possessions and your relationships in a fresh way that can really, really help you, especially when we go through hard times in life. So check that out. If you'd like to add your voice to the mix, head on over to restitutio.org and find this episode, Podcast 78, The Insidious Danger of Self-Righteousness, and drop a comment. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.